Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Garolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. Today's guest was born and raised in South Africa and played all of his junior tennis there. In 1988, he got to a career high of 19 in the world. He reached the finals of six ATP Tour tournaments, winning two in Orlando, where he defeated Jimmy Connors and Johannesburg. He won 20 doubles tournaments and with his partner, Paul Anacone, won the 1985 Australian Open. He is now South Africa's Davis Cup captain, and we had a terrific chat. Christo von Rensburg is today's guest. So hang on. So you're in Austin, Texas, correct? Yes, I've been here since 1991. What prompted that? You know, when, when we used to play on the tour, leaving South Africa, coming to America, it's hard to just, when you have a week off, go home, like the Australians, New Zealanders. And Kevin Curran was at UT, then turned pro. You know, the guy who lost to Wimbledon to Becker. Of course, man. This is, a, listen, my show, we know, we know. So Kevin Curran went to Texas. I know. And he lived here, so sometimes he would invite us, the South African guys, to come and visit him on an off week. And I just fell in love with Austin. So you are an Austin transplant vis-a-vis Kevin Curran. Kevin Curran was the catalyst to make that happen. Yes, but I worked out of Great Neck, New York with my coach. But when we started, you know, when the rankings started dropping, we kind of <laughs> decided, you know, that we're going to split. And then I had to find a, a base. Gentlemen, you hear former world number 19 with that silky South African accent. You know, you're, you always, all the South Africans have the, that great voice. That's why there's so many broadcasters in tennis with the South Af- like Robbie Koenig, for example. But gentlemen, you hear former world number 19. He got to one in doubles and is a grand slam, a major champion, won the Australian Open with Paul Anacone, another friend of the show. And that is South African Davis Cup captain Christo von Rensburg. Thank you for coming on, my man. Craig, thanks for inviting me. It was good to see you at the Davis Cup last week. You know, when when I first saw you, I didn't recognize you because I have a well, I have a idea of my mind of I only know you from pro tennis, so I you look different. You know, twenty five, thirty <laughs> years. I, I ago. lost my hair. <laughs> we all <laughs> lost our hair. Thanks again for coming on. It was a pleasure to meet you. Let's get right into it. As you know, we do a five set format. First, that's the off-the-court report. How is Austin? How have you been there? You're a busy guy there. Yes, I'm busy here because uh, for the last three years, I run professional tennis events here for men and women. We, we, we want to help the kids, you know, the ones that are just graduating from college, being there on the tour for a year to make points. So we started with a lower tier, 15,000, then a 18. And this year we're hosting two 25,000s, one in October, one in November. And next year we're looking in bringing a big WTA to Austin also. And do you teach tennis? I don't advertise. So I only teach if someone calls me or they find me. Like in my tournament last year, I, the girl that was seated, one in my tournament, found out that you know I live here and stuff. And uh, she was amazing. When I watched her play, and she came to me after the tournament and said, "Can I? Can you help me?" 
So I've been helping her since uh, January. Who's that player? That player's name is Fernanda Contreras from Mexico. Fernanda Contreras. Yeah, but she's brought up in Austin. Her dad has an academy here, and uh, she actually went to the same high school as my daughter. They one year apart and then went to Vanderbilt and ended up being a mechanical engineer and number three in college tennis. And now she's on the tour. She's playing pro tennis. Yes, she started 500 and we started in January and she's 275 now. She said to me the other day she was six out of the U.S. Open. So she's on the right track. Christo von Rensberg, uh, a man in tennis, huh? You're, you're working with players on a case-by-case basis. You're running tournaments. You're in Austin. Is there a vigorous or a vivacious tennis community in Austin? I know Andy Roddick is there. Do you, do you see these guys? Yeah, Andy Roddick was here. He left, you know. Then you have uh, 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 Petty Fendick, who played my time. And we actually had exactly the same rankings on the tour, played the same time. She coached the women's UT team after she retired. Then Amir Delik is here from Bosnia. So he was ranked 60 in the world. So those are the guys, those are mostly the people that was here in like the top 100. And then there's a few that's a little bit, and actually, sorry, Chris Haggard, 19 in the world in double South African, he's here. Yeah, I think Marianne DeSchwart lives in Houston, and Mark Knowles lives in Dallas. And my sister-in-law, she'll kill me not saying a name, Elna Reinach, was 26 in the world in singles and top 10 in doubles. Is in, is in Austin. Yeah, so she's also helping me. She's kind of working at the front desk at all my tournaments. That's cool. Let's move into the second set. This is the On the Court Report. You know, I had the opportunity to broadcast uh, the Davis Cup tie between South Africa and and Venezuela. You know, I I referred to the event as the Lloyd Harris Show. And, you know, he by far was the, the best player there. What can you tell us about him? What was that like? I think firstly, going to New York, remember I've never met him, I've talked to him over the phone, but then ended up going to your first Davis Cup tie where you have a guy who's just came off the quarterfinals of the US Open and with so much confidence and obviously, you know, cracking that close to 30 now and moving up. You don't really, you don't know what to expect when you first meet someone like that. But he was amazing with the team, and it was just a pleasure working with him and open to a lot of things. But just great to be on the court and to get to see, you know, what those guys are doing and close up, where most of the time now you see the guys on TV only. But I I really enjoyed it. It was in the evenings we were all together, so that was nice. Is he a good guy? I I think we clicked right away. I think we had a lot of fun. And, I mean, after the first day, he started this thing. Well, you know, all your newbies, we need nicknames for you. So he started getting that out. And then we're on a group text, all of us. And he's always answering when everyone is throwing out questions. So here's a question for you. Um, sure. Just Was this your debut as the Davis Cup captain? Yes. 
Yes, I did in 1998, 99, and 2000, I did three Fed Cup captaincy for South Africa when Amanda Kutzer was top 10 in the world. And then, uh, uh, like you said, Jonette Kruger was up there and Marianne de Swart. So we had quite a good team then. I did three, uh, three ties there. So you made your debut. How good is Lloyd? Well, you know, I went after the match and I said to him, making a debut, it's something that I will treasure my whole life. I mean, going in and your guy wins six left, six left. You know, my daughter in the stands witnessing everything. Doesn't matter who you play. To win six left, six left, you cannot lose concentration at all. So what an introduction. I think I have no idea how I can top that. You know, after like 20 minutes, he asked me a question about the opponent, what I think. I kind of avoided saying anything because the score was like five left. And I'm like, I said to him afterwards, just remember, if you come up to me on a changeover, I'm walking away. I'm not answering any questions you have. Was it interesting to see a player that's 31 in the world, but on the rise for the weekend? Was it What was interesting about it? You know, what was, uh, what was interesting, I come from the training of Lendl type. You know, I traveled with him for eight years. We were together and we would go to private resorts to train privately. So it's all discipline and it's, you know, you, you sit in your, and, and you know that this is how you're going to do it. What was amazing of him is sometimes he would just, you know, he'll have a little bit of casual play, but then he switched on like within a second and he could just rip the opponent apart where you kind of from the old school you think wow the guy looks like uh, he's not into this point but he ends up winning the point because when it ha- when he when he needs to he's just stepping so it was really good for me to see that and then you can relate how McEnroe used to play and those people that had the instinct and you know, don't need to be on the court for four or five hours. So that was that was obviously fun to witness. I was stunned at how hard <laughs> he hits his forehand. He's got so much racket at speed. You know, uh, the one day on the practice, I just kind of said to him, you know, he's just standing there and he's warming up a few serves and it's swinging and it's kicking and it's going. I said to him, your forehand and your serve, I mean, was it always this easy for you? Because it just looks like, it's like amazing, you know? He's not even sweating, and the thing is turning. He says, from a young age, it was just very easy for me to do these things. And what a gift, you know? And he's, he's a very good athlete. I didn't know he was moving so well on the court. His athleticism is, it's unbelievable, uh, it's, uh, yeah, you're not expecting it as much, but you know what I saw? He picked up on a doubles point. I thought the ball was past him, and I actually said to him on a changeover, I said, wow, that ball you got. He said, yes, I also didn't think I was going to get it, but I got it. But he was there in time. So he's got all the stuff you need, you know? Can you speak to that? Like, what's the difference between a guy 31 and a guy 11 or a guy 20, like is what's the difference? Is it, or is it just really a matter of time and he's going to be a top tenner? 
you know, that's so close. I think it will probably come down maybe to a little bit of decision-making as you get more experience. But remember, he's beaten Nadal. He's beaten, uh, you know, top guys. So he already has a taste of beating those guys. So I think that's a matter of time. He's not as scared because usually getting from 30 maybe up, you might now think, okay, you're going to have to play beat guys like Djokovic and all those guys, but he's playing them already. And he's playing good matches against them. You know, serving for the first match against Zverev. You know, so uh, he's tasted that. I He probably... I don't know how hard he works off the court. I, you know, we, we, in the Davis Cup, that's not the priority by the time they get there. So depending on what he's going to do on his off weeks, and then it kind of depends on the coaching he has because there's two ways I look at coaching. If you have weapons that is very good, you can work on it and it can become excellent. If you spend too much time on stuff that, are, that you're just normal in, they will become good. They'll never become excellent. Now, hopefully he won't fall in the trap of wanting to work so badly on the stuff he needs to improve that he doesn't take his weapons to be exceptional. But I think he's got great people in his team, and that's why they took him. I mean, his team has been with him since he was eight years old. So, so they are doing a great job. So I think that will work out perfectly. Did you learn anything interesting that you can share that, you know, maybe, you know, our, our show, we prided on being the insider show. Did you learn anything interesting? I mean, we didn't know he was going to be at Labor Cup and he's, uh, he's over at Labor Cup. What's, what's, yes. what, what, was he telling you anything interesting throughout the weekend? The thing what struck me kind of was at the end, the last dinner we had, he said to me, okay, I have a question for you. And I said, what? He says, can you tell me if you coach against me, how you would play me? And I thought, and I thought about it because, you know, obviously I watch him. I had very good coaches in my corner, so we know what we look for. And what was very interesting was that I said to him, I actually rather don't. Because then I have to tell you something where I feel, and that might just raise something that you thought, well, I thought I was good in it, and now you tell me not. So I, I kind of delayed it. And then he said to me, but that's how I learn. If you can tell me that, I will see when that happens in a match, and I could then be ready for it. I thought that was very smart. I never thought of it like that. So this was tough for me. We, listen, it, it's not really like weaknesses. It's just how would you play him, you know, and what kind of a player. So that was very interesting. And then the other thing I picked up. Well, hold on. What did what'd you tell him? What would you tell him? Uh, I probably <laughs> can't say that because he's a friend of mine. I mean, would I like to? Yes. But I feel this was so, I really never tell a player what they do bad. I'm trying to fix it without them knowing. And I told him it was about five minutes before he says, no, I need to hear it. It'll be okay. I need to hear it. And then he opened up and we actually had a great discussion. So I didn't know if he was testing me to know if I know anything about the game because I'm 58 years old. You know, a young guy always thinks they know everything and they do. But the other thing too is 
when I watch him play, and it came up in the doubles, because I've never seen him play doubles, obviously, he has so much time. He's never rushed. I was so impressed with that because, and I said to him that as soon as I see someone does something well, I make a point to tell them that. And that night I said to him, you've got, you've got a gift, man. You never get rushed. You just feel like you have time and they rush you and you eat your ball normal. And then if they hit a weak ball, you just switch on and you take advantage, but you're not rushed if you run around or they hit it hard. Isn't that the mark of a, of a world-class elite special athlete? hundred percent. Yeah. That's what I think too. Yeah. The most amazing thing in the doubles, and I'll share this with you. I'm sitting there and this is what usually happens with the people not ranked very high in tennis or doubles. Let's go to doubles. You know, someone serves at you, it's five all and they serve to you at 30, 40 and you kind of think I need to make this ball. I can make it. And then we can break. Suddenly you hold the racket a little bit tighter. And on average, over a year, you miss more of those returns than you should. In our days, McEnroe was just amazing in it. You served to him, and he was up. He didn't put pressure on him. He kind of felt, okay, this is my turn. So he would make all those returns. That's why he was such a good doubles player. So in a doubles match with, uh, with Lloyd, you know, and he's just starting to play now. He's moving, he's ranking up. He's about 230 in the world, but... He's obviously, that's going to help his bodies anyway when we talked about it. He's returning far back like he likes. And then, you know, he kind of do his thing. And then 30 all, the guy serves, and I hear him in Afrikaans saying to his partner, listen, I'm going to take this early and put it low cross court. You look for it. And he just suddenly switched his position to five steps closer. And he hit the ball exactly what he wanted to do. And it was amazing, actually, you know, to see that they just changed. They didn't think this is a big point. Let me do what I've been doing well. He said, I wanted to do that play because that's going to be better. And he just switched over and did it. Amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be, I think he he's going to be a big factor in my doubles lineup from now on moving forward. Is he going to be a big factor in pro tennis uh, for the next 10 years? I think so. I mean, he's young and he moved, he's got the three weapons, serve, forehand, and, and athleticism. It's hard to let that go, you know. So that could probably help him for a long time. It's going to be probably, he's got a great uh, physiotherapist, Karen, who's been traveling with him from South Africa. She does all the tennis stuff. They get along really well. She was with him the whole summer. And if they do their planning correct, that I think they are, you, you know, you, you need to see on top of what he eats, what he drinks, and how he trains. Did he share with you any, any perspectives on his relationship with Xavier Melise? No. Okay. I was just kind of, uh, you know, I was just kind of asking him a little bit about the coaches he has. And he was just kind of pointing out that they are very calm. They bring a nice, calm environment to him. And then I can see that's kind of what he likes. You know, he was not going to have someone there that boom, 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 boom. But he likes to be structured. He likes to know in advance what he's going to do tomorrow. So we're trying to stick to that as much as we can. What were your impressions of Novak Djokovic's U.S. Open? I felt very sorry for the guy. 
because I actually got to know him five, five years ago at Wimbledon. Uh, I coached someone and I was with him on the court for six days, six practices. So I got to know him. Who? Uh, Djokovic. No, who did you coach that you were? Uh, Ed Cordy. He was number four from England. So he would practice with Djokovic every day. And, he, and during that time, my daughter was with me and she'll be with us on the court sitting there. And what was, I was I'll, I'll tell you now what, what I thought was really cool of him. He didn't really know me. Becca introduced him to me because Becca was coaching him then and I know Becca and we played against each other a lot of times. So uh, on his off day, the one day he had this game, on the off days he was a lot more funnier and relaxed, but the day of the match, that warm-up, it's all business, you know, not a lot of talking, even Becca on the court. It's just do his thing. So the, the one day that was in between, he called us all to the net. He says, okay, it's grass. You each get a ball. We're going to roll the ball and see who can stop the ball the closest to the baseline. Simple, stupid game, but simple. That's his game. Yeah, yeah. that's now the fun. So Brianna was standing a little bit further, and then he says, come on, stand here, come here. And he puts her between him and Becca. So she rolls, and she won. So I have it on video, so the high five, high five. But what I thought that changed my mind, the next day was match day. So I took Ed Corey earlier because I don't want to be late. We're on the court. And my daughter ended up, got stuck at the top because a badge couldn't get her in because she didn't walk with us. So she just sat at the top of Orangi. That's the name of the practice courts at the, at the uh, Wimbledon. Yeah. And I thought, and then he came and practiced, but I didn't see. And I said, ah, she can't come for the last practice. So after the practice, I walked up and she's all smiles. I thought she was going to be disappointed. I said, and I'm like, yeah, thank goodness. She said, Dad, Djokovic walked over to me. He saw me sitting. And he says, how do you feel about yesterday's beating me by rolling the ball and talk to her for like a minute? And I thought, that was pretty cool. I thought that was, yes, he sat by herself. He only saw us. He's 23 years old. Not like she was with us high. He's, he made a turn. And since that day, so back to the U.S. Open. This is such, was such a... You know, it was a tough year because every slam had more and more pressure. And you can imagine when it started getting to the 16s and the quarters and the semis of the U.S. Open. You know, this is history. And I was actually rooting for him because I thought this would be good if someone like that would win the Grand Slam, the four in a row. Because if you get someone to win it now in this environment where the tennis is so strong, you know that they have to be super, super good. And if no one ever breaks it, you start having questions. How tough was it in 1960 or 1970? Yeah. And the same person played three Grand Slams on grass. But I have a lot of respect for Labour, but it's like the new generations think different. My coach that played with Labour and Ball, he, would, he said he was rooting for, I mean, in a nice way, he loved Labour's record to stand by itself. So I think generations will change. So just see him in the beginning and see that he couldn't play his normal game. 
for the first set and a half. It was tough to see. What was your impression of that, that he was flat, that he seemed out of out of sync? I think that's purely, listen, I can't talk for him, but as a former player, it's purely just pressure and nerves. The last half of the match, he did not, he showed more normal, but the other guy just outplayed him then. And at 2-1 in the second set, he had him left 40. That was a big change. If he had won that game, he would have been up a break. So it could have changed then. But the last half was pure genius. And how good this guy played, Medvedev. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of rotation on the ball. It's pure flat with a little bit, but the strike zone is, it's all in his hands. And he's a great athlete. Good, good, good for him. Good for him. I thought, yeah, it was a tremendous effort from Medvedev. Uh, we have to, we have to amazing acknowledge that. Part of me thought that Medvedev's athleticism and the way he covers the court made Novak go for more on some of those big points, and he missed. He was You're human. hundred percent right. He was human. Because how many times have you seen Djokovic in the last 10 years rushing the net? You know? Well, that's what made me think he was injured, but um, sources told me that he was not. He had he was he got outplayed from the back. Uh, I do believe uh, Kale said this, and I'm a big fan of this. Let me let me rephrase it. When someone gets outplayed from the back, you sometimes hear the coaches to say, go to the net, go to the net. But the good player is still on the baseline. It doesn't matter. So I am totally with Cahill. Why didn't he maybe start shorter and bring uh, uh, Medvedev to the net? Well, that's interesting. But he didn't do that. And when he said it, I said totally agree. Thinking maybe he should have knifed the backhand low, try to get bring him in a little bit, get him off the baseline. Because just, just going in on him doesn't really matter because he's on the baseline anyway. I never understand that tactic. What is the health of the South of South African tennis here in you know 2021? Aside from Lloyd, what's your opinion of your of your country's tennis at the moment? Since I've been you know since I got this job from January, I've been following around at home, and I saw that what was totally news for me that was exciting. They actually have come up now with a plan a bonus kind of plan where from young age, under 12s up to under 18, on a performance base, if you play tournaments or you play the local nationals or you play ITFs and you get to certain rounds, they are going to subsidize you with money for air tickets or things like that. So that would really help the younger generation because, listen, it's very expensive for South African to come overseas. It's too and hard. The only, the only, because the dollar in Iran is 15 to 1. So whatever you pay here for something, multiply it by 15 and say, would you pay for it? So that's hard. So, so looking at that seems like there's a bright thing going on there. And then there's some good academies there. The guy who worked with Lloyd Haddon since he was nine, he's got an academy there. And he's got the two best South African uh, women in that academy with him. So there's obviously at this stage still, our escape as a South African is coming to college. 
And then you have to hope that they get to a college where that coach and the player has a good chemistry and understand each other game. Otherwise, they're not going to improve. So I am starting to look who are the coaches here in South Africa college who we maybe want to be part of and say to the younger generations, pick one of these five colleges or pick one. So these are all in the plans and making. So, so that's great. And Lloyd obviously is a great example now. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Where does your tennis begin? Well, it, be, it began in a small town, but he called Utenek near Port Elizabeth. That's about eight hours east of Cape Town, the corner. So how, my parents, how, my how does your family, how did you become from there? How did you end up there? Well, my parents actually only played social tennis. You know, and we were, I would just be when they play, they would be like a 3 0, 3 5 level. So I was just brought up next to the tennis court. But luckily for me, I played, all, I played three sports rugby, cricket, and tennis. Had to pick between tennis and cricket uh, at the age of 18. But growing up and being about 13 and from six years to 14 years old, the lady who coached me was actually the mother of. Linky Bosov, who won the U.S. Open doubles with Ilana Kloss. So she's about five years older than me. So when she came home, I started meeting with her. For our listeners, uh, Ilana Kloss, South African pro, who is Billie Jean King's uh, significant other. Yes, and also was the founder with Billie Jean King for Team Tennis in America. Founded Team Tennis and was a good player. And was a yes, good player. Was a very good player, and they played well. They played. Uh, I think they they played amazingly. Fed Cup for South Africa too. So getting to play with her, but then my ranking dropped when I was eighteen. I actually only I was only ranked twenty one in South Africa under eighteen, and I stopped. I was going to work in the bank, and then I was going to go to the army. Hang on a second. Let me. I want to back up though. You. So are you playing? Were you were you traveling all over South Africa? Did you go to Zimbabwe? Were you never outside? I never played outside of South Africa. I only went a few times to the bigger junior tournaments. Uh, you had to travel like twenty four hours in a train or in a bus, you know, because it was all in Johannesburg where I was. So didn't get that exposure as much. But what was lucky is. You know, my father-in-law passed away, ran academy, ran some training camps, and I married his daughter, and then Elna was a sister and a brother, and they were all number ones in South Africa. And they're two years apart, they're all younger than me. So he called me up when he heard I was stopping, and I had six months after school before I was going to go to the army for two years. He says, come and stay with us for two, for six months. I want you to practice with my kids when they get out of school. And I said to my dad, dad, I want to go, but I've stopped tennis. So one phone call changed my whole life just to come and practice with these kids. Hang on a second. So you had no feel for playing pro tennis. I wanted to, I actually got a full scholarship to Alabama, the Crimson Tides. And my dad looked at me and he says, where are we going to get the money to send you to America? Because they were both school teachers. And I got the message, there was no money. So then we decided I was going to go to the army. 
And that's where, when I was going to the army, I realized I can't really go overseas to a great college to play tennis, and I'm only 21. It was the end. But my parents-in-law had a court at home. Suddenly, I'm on a ball machine. I hit with the players. My mother-in-law would coach five, six hours, and my life changed. How old were you when you got married? Well, I wasn't married then, but when I was up there, when I was up there, that was when I was 19. I just finished high school. This is your girlfriend who became well, your... I wasn't dating yet. I wasn't dating yet then. But I knew her because they all play tennis. Got it. But, you so, know, you get to stay in the same house and you get to see them all the time. And then every day they look better and better and prettier <laughs> and prettier. You know how it goes. I do. I do. But uh, this is actually an amazing story. I mean... So, uh, a, essentially a tennis family who you knew the father said listen man you're too good you cannot go to the army well you have to go to the army but to stop but he said i want you to i want you to work with us and i want to see if you can get very good no he just called me so the, so when you finish high school we do it in in december then you go to the army or college you have to pick if you go to the army you got to go to college afterwards you cannot leave the country and come back if you haven't done one of those two. This was now in the 1980s. So I said, no, I'm going to go to army first because I don't really know what I, was, what I wanted to go and study. But I wasn't called to the army in January. I was called in June. So six months, I was going to work in a bank. That's when he found out. He says, before you go, just come and train with them. Never thought I was going to get better. Then they don't have to go and look for people to practice with. And uh, it turned out to be great. And now all of them live in Austin, Texas. Hang on a second. So how <laughs> did you turn pro? How? So you never played like the Orange Bowl or the Eddie Hearn no, or the East, ever, none of but, that? No, never, ever. But what happened that six months, uh, the fourth month, two months before I went to the Army, my then father-in-law's, he wasn't yet, but... Uh, he heard that there's a big tournament in South Africa that they invite the top eight guys who are under 21 and it's going to be played on grass. And he begged the South African Federation to give me a wild card. He says, I've seen him improve. He's starting to do well when he went to tournaments with my kids in the seniors on weekends. And they gave me a chance and I won it. I beat all the top seven guys in South Africa and I was not ranked. And then the South African Union started checking out. So I started being pulled sometimes in the army on a little camp here and there. And then there was about two months during my second year in the army. They said, if you're going to go to the border in Angola, we will compensate those times if you want to go overseas with a little squad. I said, yes. So I had to do both. And then I realized, I think I might be able to play this game. So when I finished the army, I went overseas with another guy from Utenaik that was ranked 250 in the world. We played doubles together. He played singles. We won the first three tournaments in a, on the tour. Come on. And I was set. So you made fortunate. money. You made money. I'm going to say this thing again. I say it always. God works in mysterious ways, man. When did you crack the top 100? Uh, I, the first two years, I got to 123. The first year and a half, I got to about 123. 
Then Anacon and I, the one year, 85, I think it was, did really well in doubles, and we went to one as a team. But because I'm still then, my ranking dropped. I couldn't make qualifying for singles because the ranking started dropping, and we're playing all the big tournaments. So I dropped all the way to 285 that year. But I used the money from doubles, and I borrowed some money from someone that I paid back in about two months later to get a coach for me. And this was the coach that you met at the Davis Cup last week that helped me. Fishback. Yeah, Fishback, because he coached Brian Teacher, who won the Australian Open, and Amos Manstorf that played with me that was 18. Peter Fishback, uh, a Long Islander who played pro tennis. His brother, I believe his name is Mike Fishback, notoriously and, and infamously was the player who went on tour with spaghetti strings. And for our listeners, uh, you, sh- you got to look this up, but he strung the racket in a funky way. And I believe he played like Nastasi or, or Vilas and he beat him and they banned Stan the strings. Stan Smith, I think. I think it was Stan Smith. Okay. And, yeah. But he, he played with this racket where the, where the strings made the ball like it was like basically like a knuckleball in baseball. You didn't know where the ball was going. So my coach actually strung the first racket. He decided what he was going to try and do. So my, my coach strung for his brother. So it had double string, and then they didn't have the cross blocks and all those things in the string. So he, in between the strings, they had to tie everything because the strings would just cut each other and a double string and it quadrupled the spin of the racket. But they didn't ban it quick enough until they went. And I think Stan Smith defended the US Open title. I have to make sure. And he lost first round or something to the spaghetti racket. And that's when there was a big issue. Nastasi played with it uh, for a while and it was amazing. <laughs> it was did, called the spaghetti racket. Did you ever did you ever hit any balls with the spaghetti strings? I haven't hit with it, but I've had the original one in my hand when I visit him. He still has it. I think it's locked up in a safe. You know, and we need to, we are thinking that when we run our WTA tournament at 250 next year in Austin, Texas, for the woman, we have to have this on display. You take the money from doubles. You borrow some cash, you hire Fishbach. It's 1985. Yes. And we started training and we met in January the following year. And this story I tell all the time for people who are working hard. And so just for your background, I was a very hard worker. I was very disciplined. There was no messing around. There was no emotion on the court. So I have this money. I've got this great coach now. I didn't win one main draw match from January until June. Now, if you can imagine the pressure, I qualified. Six months. But I lose. But deep, I knew I have the best coach. I've been practicing. I do well, but why can't you win? So I use this speech all the time when I can see I'm helping a player and after four or five weeks, they feel the pressure. What are they doing wrong? And then it all clicked on the grass in England. But that was six tough. The money is getting used up and it's getting used up and it's getting used up and I'm working harder and there's just no light, man. There's no light in this tunnel. What did Fishbach do 
that made you better? I always kind of wonder when I think back now, firstly, he was very positive, you know, and he had a good feel of how the game should be played, you know, and when I'm a believer, if you do your homework and you pick the right coach and you believe that they've done, they know what they're talking about. So if they tell you to serve four doubles, they have a reason why you should serve four doubles. So I always had that feeling, whatever he says, I'm going to try but he always said to me, and now looking back, I wonder, maybe, maybe he was right or maybe. He always said to me, you have really good volleys. You should get to the net. You do it. Looking back, you hear that every day, every day, every day. Maybe it was just average. But he realized that was the most average or the best average of my game. Let's see, like I said to you in the beginning, this was my best. Let's see if we can make it excellent or good and just work it out. And I believe that was part of it. Telling, you, telling me what to do. And then he taught me one thing, and I still use it to this day. It sounds negative, but it's not. Something in your match today will not work. So don't flip out. Don't panic. Find what's working. Everything is not going to work. If it does, bonus, but prepare yourself for when it happens. Because how many times do people come off the court and they say, oh, my serve didn't work today, I lost. You have a return, you have a back end, you have volleys, you have overhead. So there's a, there are two great things that I still use up now when I work with people. But you got to 19 in the world, so at some point you started playing very good tennis. Or was it easier to move then? And you had a good you had a good grass court season. The grass court season was longer, and you went from, like you said, two eighty five. You know, you go and suddenly you stop because it was. Uh, I qualified at Queens. I lost third round to Anacom in three sets, and then I then I qualified at Wimbledon, and I had break point in the fourth set to be even. Uh, in this round of 16s, yeah, I am like a rookie. And I realized I can actually get to a fifth set because the guy got tired. And being in the quarters in my first year at Wimbledon, and I thought, wow, this is, I think I can, I can, <laughs> I think I can play this game style. I do it well, and I've beaten some players, so I've got to stick to it. There's just no other way. What was it like to crack the top 20? At that stage, when you're a little bit younger, you know, when, it, when the ranking came out, and one of my best friends from South Africa, I traveled with him a lot, Eddie Edwards, he went to Pepperdine. John McEnroe, one year, lost one match in college, and it was against him. He said to me, when the ranking says, Christo, for the rest of your life, this is his words, for the rest of your life, you can tell everyone now you were top 20. As he said it, it kind of, you know, yeah, now you realize it feels good to be able to say that. So sometimes I joke around when people introduce me and they say, hey, you were 19 in the world. And I said, you should say I was top 20. It sounds a lot better. <laughs> Man, you know, you know, and and, that, and that's and that's and that's no joke. You know, Lloyd Harris. You know, we talk about him uh, exponentially, but he hasn't. He, he hasn't done what you did. You you got to you got to top twenty. That's an incredible effort, and you 
one of the best doubles players. So I talked to Brad Gilbert in an effort to get ready for this interview, and he told me a couple things about you. He said that you were a vicious, vicious toe-dragger, and that if you took the court, particularly on grass, if you took the court on grass after your match, you wrecked the baseline brutally because you dragged your toe incredible when you served, that you that you – that you had that the way you tossed the ball that you were diving into the net each and every time is that true that's why at queens they never would have they, they had me early in my career play one match on the center court and <laughs> then the groundskeeper because i practiced with lendo on the outside courts he said christo i'm sorry but you're never going to get the center court until you're in the final so i had to wait till i get to the final but i did i would i tell you they i would drag it with weight on so he's 100% right, and also I'm his chicken, whatever your pigeon. He was one of the guys. There were two guys that I could not beat. Yeah, he said he, had a, good, he, said he had a good record against you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't beat him at all, so mm-hmm. he probably doesn't think I could play, and rightly so. I have no, uh, I, you know, but... No, he said that you abused him in doubles. He said that you really beat him bad in doubles. Well, I had a good partner. And then Anna, and then the other one was Miloslav Machir. Yeah. These were just two guys that I tell you, it, I just don't match up against. So Brad also told me that you have like a funky, you have a celebration, the woodpecker celebration. Yes, the woodpecker with a hand out in front. Uh, actually, I had to tell the media the other day for South Africa why I'm called Hoti. <laughs> That's my nickname that Ray Moore gave me who ran Palm Springs, you know. Uh, Ray Moore, of course, yeah. He, I was in his squad when I told you during the Army I went over one year for a squad. He ran the squad. So it, it, uh, it comes from actually, I used to have a forehand approach going to the net and it looked like a slice. So it was kind of like a volley backspin, but that was my approach and he couldn't believe I could play this shot. So it was like in, in English, it would, it would be like a chop shot you know, you chop the shot or slice it. And when you turn that into an Afrikaans word, it boils down to the animal, the woodpecker. So pecker would be in Afrikaans, you know, like the woodpecker, the woody, hoti. And that's my nickname all my life. All the tennis players knows that from South Africa. Hoti. Uh, yeah, it's like, ho- it's like ho- yeah, hoti. Hoti. But it's spelled H-O-U, ho. But hoti, you can say hoti, it's the same. And that's woodpecker. They call you that's the woodpecker, like, it, basically. It's from the first part of woodpecker, Woody. <laughs> Got it, because Woody. You pick, you pick the shot, and then it, it becomes, it, that's how it, short version. <laughs> and, and so and that's your, I, that's I your move. I had a few of them at Wimbledon when I played Willander. On the Willander court, I had a few of those when I played a really good team. A really good point. That wasn't a lot against the top guys. <laughs> and, he also, and he also told me that you, at some juncture, wore clothing with smiley faces and that he thought that you had a clothing brand with smiley faces is that true yes i still have it but now i'm getting kind of rid of it uh, you know where i made clothing for uh, i was in 27 shops in texas about 10 years ago making clothing to play tennis in and t-shirts and caps and i play with a smiley thing on my racket strings because i don't have a racket contract i was from south africa and during the apartheid, not a lot of people wanted to sponsor South Africans. 
So the smiley face, I, I have caps that I wear all the time now and T-shirts and stuff. What's the name of the brand? F-Ace. F, like a face. And it's F and then it's a dash in the middle. F-Ace. But I, I took the website down about two, two months ago because I'm out of the clothing. I'm going to slow down on that now. What was it like to be a pro athlete in the mid eighties? And I guess, you know, you finished in the early nineties. What was it like to be a pro athlete from South Africa in particularly having to navigate and negotiate your, your careers in the shadow of apartheid? You know, I, as on my career, uh, I got along, you know, the only thing that hurts there during those years is, I think the biggest disappointment for me just as a player, not, not as a pol- politics or something, because obviously what South Africa did was wrong, you know, and they fixed that. And that was not good when you look back at that history. The sad thing for me, just as a personal player, or for myself was the year that Anakun and I were number one in the world for about seven to eight months. The end of the year circuit came up and I couldn't go to three big tournaments. And with that, the team that was lying second was the American guys. That was really good. Uh, Seguso and Flack. Uh, Flack, that shame that lost his life a few years ago. So then they passed us. Let me just stop you. What what tournaments could you, you were you were essentially banned to play? Yeah, you couldn't get a visa those years to go to these. But now I can't remember. I just know the one was the Stockholm Open for sure, and then I think those years was also uh, Asia, Tokyo. I think we couldn't go to, and there was one I think in Holland, but I could be wrong. But there were three big ones, like still now you know, big ones in Europe at the end of the year indoors. So we couldn't go. So the year-end ranking came out. And, and just to be clear, that was the the host government's policy as a sanction against the apartheid government of South Africa. They would not allow visas to these countries. Yes, because the outside world wanted South Africa to fix that. Yeah. So they kind of decide where they could uh, penalize. Penalize, yeah. So, uh, so then that in year end ranking came out, and I mean, can I say yes? We were number one in the world. I feel I can, but we never had the year end number one ranking that gets printed. So what was for it, that, I was sad. What was it like to talk to Paul? Um, what was it like playing with Paul? It was amazing. The guy was actually amazing. And looking now, why he has so much success in the coaching world, I can just see about his demeanor. And I'll give you some examples. We played one match, and he played the juice side. And I was more the returner in the game, and he was more the server. He had like the top three biggest serves in the game when he played, really big. So we combined really well. But this one match, he just gave me every time, left 15 to me, 15, 30, break points. And I could not convert any of them. I had a shocker of like 15 minutes returning. 
and he's just on a roll. And he came up to me, and I kind of, okay, it was about time, he's probably going to say something. And he says, <laughs> I am so happy that I'm not returning on the ad side because they're serving so well to you, and they suck serving to me, he says. And I'm like thinking, what's like the general thing? Hey, start making returns. Come on, how many more do you want? He changed it up and letting me and, and, and kind of, you know, you kind of have a chuckle. That's a masterful partner right there. That's a great, that's a great diet. I think I got to try that. That's, that's a good... for coaching is really, how do you talk to your partner? Yeah. Because you know, they feel pressure. No one is doing it on purpose. Yeah. That's, and so I've learned a lot. I, I really, I, I learned a lot there. So listen, he was great. And we had some really fun times. I'm so glad I'm not returning on the ad side because these guys are serving so well. Yeah. So Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, it, it makes me feel good. Whether he was lying to me, probably a new <laughs> psychology, who cares? I, I just switch on and then we won the match. Did you ever meet uh, Nelson Mandela? Yes, I did. I, I can show you a picture if you want. I'd love to see, but tell them, tell me, uh, where, why don't you tell the story and then you'll send me the picture. Actually in Davis cup, when I, uh, in 1996, I was that, that was kind of the second time that South Africa got back in the Davis cup. So we in South Africa and it was Wayne Ferreira, Donnie Fisher, uh, Marcus Andruska, John Lochney, the Jaeger and myself, so we met the president there. That's a hell of a team right there, man. That's a real team. We did good. We, we, we played Austria in South Africa, altitude on grass. I really thought I was going to play. And he, Donnie didn't pick me. He picked Andruska for, the, for that match. And that Monday before the tie, uh, Thomas Muster became number one in the world. And I thought, wow, this could be a great ending in my career to play the last Davis Cup match that I will have a chance because I was just getting a little bit older. But I was playing okay, but not great. What a nice way to end, maybe beating the number one on grass at home. So anyway, I didn't get to play, but we got to meet him. Then uh, they took us to a remote place and he was flying in on the helicopter. And we were just all there and he talked to us and we got to shake hands and they took a picture of everyone when they got to shake his hand. So it's at my front door. When people come in, they saw that. So it's great. What did he say to you? I can't remember. No, <laughs> but no. he obviously, he, I mean, one thing in his speech, he did wish us all luck. You know, by that time, we just shake hands and stuff. And Wayne Ferreira was more the upcoming player there that was already ranked high. So I think for him, it was probably more uh, mixing with Wayne Ferreira because that was kind of in that era, but he all uh, on our names, he knew our names. So that was pretty cool. He knew, your, he, he knew all your names. Yeah, when he introduced, he would saying, Hi, uh, good luck or congratulations. So that was cool. Last question. When you, when you look back and you, and you think about your tennis, what's sort of the moral of the story? If I look back, I can say 100% that I could not have worked any harder. I could not have tried any harder because, and this is how good 
I was only as good as 19. I did have two matches that I played that I could have gone to 16. One was actually against Brad Gilbert. And I decided not to go to the net at all. And I went up 5-3 against him because he always passed me and beat me. But the statue was never. And after hour and 10 minutes, he scores 5-3. He was shocked. But he played a pattern that I actually realized I could play with him because Manstorff beat him. So I knew what the pattern was. But uh, to answer your question again, looking back, I gave everything I could. I have no regrets. I couldn't work any harder. I would have loved to have been ranked higher. I just was not good enough. And no, re no regrets that I slipped up and I should, should have worked harder. Hey, man, I hope you're proud of your career. I mean, it's an incredible life in tennis you've had. Thank you. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. I just say... I say something and you say what comes in your mind. You ready? Oh my goodness. Your favorite racket. The favorite racket was actually the Astuza. That Becker took the mold because that's the racket that I I kept putting down. I don't want to play with it. And I kept putting it down. My coaches play with the thing. And it made me a lot of a uh, lot of money later on. You played well with the Astusa. Yeah, it was first uh, Puma, but then Becker bought the mold and turned it into the Astuza. So same racket, Puma and Astuza. You remember it? Of course I remember it. Are you kidding? This is the, yeah. Are you talking to... You, yeah, of course I remember it. Uh, <laughs> grip size. Four and three eights. How did you string your racket back when you were winning loose, matches? Loose. Uh, uh, Mid-40s. Mid-40s with natural gut. Yes. Now I'm at uh, 50. What do you play with now? I play now with Babolat sponsors me. So I play with the Babolat and I like it a lot. Your greatest win? The greatest win would be the first big tournament against Connors in the final in Orlando. Did you play well? I actually did play well. I played that whole week well. I, I, I beat Mayotte the night before, and then I played Connors, and I won the first set. And funny enough how the mind works, I, I'd never really thought of winning. I was just playing. And three all, he served at left 30. And the first time in my life in that week, I thought I could win this tournament. I lost the next four games. And he gave the banana wing and everything. I went down a break, one love in the third, and then I beat him on fitness. And I won six games in a row. So that was a great, uh, a great, a great match. And my friend, they, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, was in the uh, David Frost. You know the golfer David Frost? Yeah, of course. Yeah, he was in my thing. And then the next week, he took me to the to uh, Sawgrass as a, as a present to be with him. I walked in the middle on the 17th green. The four ball was David Frost, T.C. Chang, Tom Sigmund, and Sevi Ballesteros. And Sevi took me by the shoulders. He said, let's see your golf, not your tennis. He puts me on the 17th tee. <laughs> There's like 2,000 people walking around them, and they shouting, yeah, hit the ball and stuff. And... Uh, Frost gave me a seven iron, and I hit it nice and beautiful, straight, but in the water. <laughs> so the people said, stick to tennis. 
but that was an experience. Man, you took Jimmy's legs. I mean, that's a that's a great effort to win a that final. Was, yes, that's a great moment. Your your worst loss. Oh, pass. Worst worst loss was in juniors when I told you I went to, I had to go to these tournaments from the small town. So I got to this place and I don't know the player and the first guy I play, he has the same last name as me, Van Rensburg. <laughs> so I drove a, a train for 24 hours, got there, had to call my parents two days later and said, I lost six laps, six laps, ma. That was my introduction. Worst loss, love and love. Is there one that still stings from pro tennis that you just, if you think about it, it just heats you up? The the one that stings was actually a mixed doubles match, two stun, two two matches stun. The one was a mixed doubles match in the final of the Miami tournament, and I played with my wife, and we we beat Noah McNeil. Then we played in the final. We played uh, Miloslav Machia and Jana Nabotna, both number one and two in the world, and I served in the third set. We're up a break third and 30 level. My serve, I think it was 3-2 break up and we have the momentum. Lost my serve and I couldn't win a title with my wife. And then the Queen's final against Lendl. I, I won the first set and I made one mistake in the second set that cost me the match. But I, I was playing really well and I was beating him in practice that, that period. And he finally admitted like about two years ago only that I should have won that. He never did. He called me every time at Queens when it's on every year. He says, hey, you know what tournament is on this week? <laughs> terrible, man. The guy is terrible, but he's my best friend. Is, is that right? Lendl yeah, your... is my best friend. We talk all the time. He's great. Amazing. Do you guys see each other? Not as much, but my wife and I were the only two tennis players invited to his wedding. And I have that picture also. <laughs> so that was pretty special. We're very close. That's cool, man. The toughest opponent. Yeah, I think you said it, but you, you said Machir and, and Brad. Yeah, Machir was, Machir was just very tough for me. Very tough to play. The player you love to play, was there anyone on tour that you just, where you just lick your chops when you saw that you, had, you were in the draw? Is there anyone that you've got an incredible record against? Uh, not really, because most of the time that I that I beat Lendl was in exhibition matches. So he says I don't count those three times you beat me. But not really, because I don't really have against the top guys a really big winning record. I mean, Sampras was much a younger age. Right. But uh, I always liked playing Becker more than Edberg, and I only got to play Becker twice. But I played. I always got stuck against Edberg. Your favorite forehand? In, I thought maybe you'd say Lendl's. Yeah, I was just going to look back. In our time, it was Lendl for sure. Your favorite backhand? Backhand was probably Agassi. And, uh, yeah, backhand would probably be Agassi. Yeah. Volleys? Uh, Edberg. Sir? Ivan Esevich. The most... Cavalier thing you ever do with prize money, right out of the right out of the office. Meaning what I spend on it? The most cavalier, or, the most like the most sort of 
interesting story you have that you just, that you did with something with prize money? Uh, I don't actually have a. Uh, oh, we flew Concord. Anna Cohn and I decided we had a terrible Masters in in England. We lost the first match, terrible, and we had to get excited. So we said to each other, if we can get out of this group and get to the final, because the final is always tough and you don't know, but we need to get out of this group and we cannot lose another set or something like that. So we flew Concord back. What was that experience like? That was really cool. Uh, you know, just two seats, open two seats. And then when they go through the sound barrier, they warn you, and then you hear at the back. And it's three hours. <laughs> it was three hours and 50 minutes, I think, from New York, from uh, London to New York, 3.50. That's just fantastic. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis and you could make a change in the sport with just one swing of the racket, what would it be? I think I would uh, like them to get rid of the net court. I would like them just to play it as it is because I don't like uh, confrontation. And I also realize that when you are at the net, it actually happened with Lloyd and them. I was kind of on the court there and they played a point and two of them heard it and I was right at the net and I didn't hear it, and I realized sound travel in different ways. So it's very hard, and then they sometimes have that thing now that on the net, and they don't hear when it clicks, but everyone hears it. And then you then you go to juniors that I heard a net, and it's a big point, and then the other guy, they're 12-year-olds or 14-year-olds, and the guy that's just tougher starts cheating and say, oh, it was a net play again. I don't like that. Just just play and try and get all the things out that could uh, people can take for advantage and use a system to get back in a point. Get rid of the lets. Get rid of the net cords. Just play play as ease. Play as ease. Like the cottage. We don't think we should put we don't think we put fingers fortescue. Remember Bud Collins called him fingers fortescue? He put his fingers on top of the net. Yeah, it used to be like that, where they would like listen, put his ear and his fingers to the I net. I know, I know. <laughs> hey, man, listen, Christo von Rensberg, this was uh, a pleasure. I uh, can't thank you enough for our people in Texas or for anybody that's uh, curious. What are your events coming up? Uh, on the, they can go to my website, dropshotseries.com. Dropshotseries.com. And we have one, a women's one in October and a men's one in November. Dropshotseries.com. Hey, man, listen, uh, maybe we'll see you in Austin. That's a great town. I always love to pass by Guero's. Guero's, <laughs> a great, great restaurant. That's a, is that still open there? Guero's? Yeah, you need to come and uh, hang out here and I can show you around and then drop you off downtown. So you can act like you're young again and listen to some music. <laughs> listen, <laughs> that sounds terrific. Uh, Christo von Rensberg, you are released. Thank you so much. I'm going to walk my dog and be a good husband for my wife. Enjoy the golf and the tennis this weekend, okay? Bye, Craig. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me on your show. Huge thank you to Christo von Rensberg. And thank you, as always, to Sergio Tacchini. 
See them at SergioTakini.com and use my code CRANK30 at checkout in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.